I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Welcome to the Curiously Specific Book Club, the podcast that's curiously specific about dates and locations in well-known books. Presented by Lloyd Shepard and Tim Wright. This is the second part of our journey into the world of H.G. Wells' War of the Worlds. In part one, we spent a lot of time in Woking, but now we're going to head down the Thames, following the Tripod's Trail of Destruction, starting in Shepparton, and then we're going to go across Richmond Bridge to Sheen, and then on into central London. Wherever, in, wherever Sheen is. Oh, spoiler. <laughs> and ending in central London in Primrose Hill. Like oh. all 90s rock stars, we're going to end in Primrose Hill. If you're listening to this as a patron subscriber, you've got this episode coming into your ears immediately on the back of our first episode. If you'd like to get an immediate access to second episodes and new episodes, as well as access to all our really good stuff around maps and show notes and links to references and uh, pictures and videos, head over to patreon.com, search for Curiously Specific and check out all our different subscription tiers there. Yes, I think you get a lot of value out of our research material for planning your own adventure. Yeah. Uh, if you're an H.G. Wells fan, you're going to really enjoy that. So where are we off to first? We're going to go to Shepparton. Oh, H.J.G. Ballard country. Is it? Apparently. Wrong book. Oh, no, sorry. Death, I shouted. Death is coming. Death! That was in Byfleet. That was in Byfleet, yeah. He's come on from Byfleet. And then we're into Weybridge. We're sitting opposite the Shepparton Lock where the Way, River Way, meets the River Thames, and the Way Navigation reaches the River Thames as well, so it's a, a three-way entrance into the Thames. There's some boats um, puttering around. It's rather lovely, isn't it? A couple of Canada geese. It's a very Kenneth Graham vista. Well, I was saying Thelwell. Thelwell, yeah. <laughs> rather Kenneth Graham. Rather cruelly. In the book, yeah, we remained at Weybridge until midday, and then at that hour we found ourselves at the place near Shepparton Lock, where the Way and the Thames join. Yep. So what we're looking at at the moment is the River Thames. It is the just... The Way just down just to our left. Just past where the junction is, yeah. We're on the south bank of the Thames, as it were. And we're looking at a rather a grand white, old white building with lawns looking down to the water's edge. The uh, Way has a treble mouth, and at this point, boats are to be hired. And there was a ferry across the river. Yep. There still is a ferry across the river. There is. It's only a, it's a very small little sort of flat boat, 
that you basically call on demand. Someone sits there and then you wave and they come puttering across. Yep. It says here that on the Shepparton side was an inn with a lawn. Which is the other side to what we're, yeah. where we we're, are. We see a building with a lawn that looks quite... Like could have been an inn. But it's now a private home. Yeah. But it does look quite... Well, it looks like it could be a hotel. I mean, it's yeah, quite large. Yeah. And beyond that, the tower of Shepparton Church. Yeah. It has been replaced by a spire rose above the trees. Yeah. Well, now, we have a problem with that. Well, we can't see it. And uh, the tree, there are trees it here. It tall enough. There's no way it would be... I mean, there's a very large Lylande in the way at the moment, but even yeah, so... But even so, it would, have to be in, it would have to be hugely... I mean, it would have to be Notre Dame tall to be visible from here. So I don't quite know what he's on about there. It's, quite, it's a bit odd, isn't it? Yeah. Suddenly, we saw a puff of smoke that jerked up into the air and hung, and forthwith the ground heaved underfoot and a heavy explosion shook the air, smashing two or three windows in the houses near. Here they are, shouted a man in a blue jersey. Yonder, do you see them, yonder? Quickly, one after the other, one, two, three, four of the armoured Martians appeared, far away over the little trees, across the flat meadows that stretched towards Chertsey, and striding hurriedly towards the river. Little cowled figures they seemed at first, going with a rolling motion and as fast as flying birds. Then, advancing obliquely towards us, came a fifth. Their armoured bodies glittered in the sun as they swept swiftly forward upon the guns, growing rapidly larger as they drew nearer. One on the extreme left, the remotest that is, flourished a huge case high in the air and the ghostly terrible heat ray I had already seen on Friday night smote towards Chersey and struck the town. Ooh. So okay. They come up to the river, don't they? So then the, his idea about this was to get underwater to yes. save himself the heat ray. Yes. And then, of course, one of them gets hit by a shell, by an army shell at this point. Yes. Uh, and, and, is, and, and is crashes killed. into Shepparton Church and smashes yeah. it up. Well, first of all, it crashes into the river, doesn't it? And then it, crash, then it crashes it, it, it over. Goes, it, it sort goes of loses wobbly. control of itself and staggers off. And, and smashes, smashes into, into Shepparton Church, which is why he says it's now a steeple. Because to emphasise, this book is written after the events, looking yes. back on the events that happened at some point yeah. in a, a date we will talk about. Yeah, He yeah, does he talk did. about the small trees, doesn't he? So yeah. maybe it's just that the trees are much taller now than they were in. You would see the Martian. Going over that way. Yeah. And then he says after he smashes the church, he goes out of sight, the other side of the church, which you would yeah. expect. Yeah. So that sort of figures, don't you think? Yep. It all works. It all works apart from not being able to see the church. From yeah, here. but everything else is fine. Apart from, apart from, why does he not mention Doily Cart Island? Doily Cart Island is an island in the Thames, just to our right. I'm looking at it right now. It's got a massive, great, slightly creepy looking house on it. I mean, it must be. The know, Guardian describes it as a crumbling mansion. It is huge. Three floors. Actually, it was only recently in, in an article on the 5th of August 2021, so not that long ago. Yeah. Doily Cart Island, complete with crumbling mansion, sold for £3 million. Mystery local buyer hopes to restore Thames site. Now, Doily Cart Island. Yeah. Listeners might know Doily Cart. Gilbert and Sullivan fans will know. Yes, exactly, because Doily Cart was the man who promoted and produced Gilbert and Sullivan musicals and made a lot of money doing so. This house we're looking at was... He bought the island, which is known as Folly Eot. Yeah, and Eot is the Thames Thames Islands, Eot, E-Y-O-T. Yeah. 
and he bought it in 1890. Oh, so and he, he bought the island in 1890. Yes, and he developed it. He was building the house in 1896. Around the time we're talking about, right? So Wells would have seen that being built. Absolutely. Doesn't strike me as a sort of opera musicals fan, H.G. Wells. Do you think he didn't, he didn't like a bit of Gilbert and Sullivan? I thought it was a bit frivolous. Well, they were, they were sort of on the wane by then, anyway, I have They've been say. going a long while. But, I mean, they were 1850s, uh, they started? They, they? Well, I think their last um, work together was 1895 or something, and it was a flop. And they'd already fallen out quite badly. But he built this house initially to be an extension of the Savoy Hotel, that you could book it. And you could take a boat from the Savoy, from the Strand, from, Westman, from Waterloo Bridge yeah. around there, yeah. and come down here and had, take a suite here. Oh. Right. That was his idea. It was going to be uh, sort of Savoy's out-of-town luxury so it's, rooms. It's like Soho House and Chipping Norton. That yeah, kind of but idea. With, with its own boat, ferry service, back into London, right? Oh, yeah. Quite fancy. Yeah, yeah. But um, the local Shepperton council wouldn't give him a drinking licence. So he couldn't run it as a hotel, he felt. That seems, that seems very likely around here, doesn't it? <laughs> so then he made it into his private home. Do you think they probably thought Doddy Carr was a bit of a revist? Well, no, it, really be, it was very middle class around here, wasn't it? Yeah. Definitely. So he's quite an influential guy. He brought sort of French cookery to, yeah. to London. He was in charge of the Ritz, the Savoy, the Adelphi. I mean, all the big hotels. So you've got a lot of information now on this guy that Wells doesn't mention. Well, why wouldn't you? <laughs> if you were sitting here, it's the talk of the town, isn't it? You would think it would be. And also, if you're, they so keen, if you're so keen on smashing up everything you don't like about places between Woking and London, yeah. where people are too successful or bourgeois... Or bourgeois. Or, it's bourgeois know, he's got a problem with. Yeah. I would say Gilbert and Sullivan yeah, fans yeah, yeah, yeah. are first for the heat ray, aren't yeah, they? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're not, they're, not, they're not what you would call socialist. <laughs> sorry, sorry any Gilbert. <laughs> they're not socialist fair, are they? As someday it may happen that a victim must be found, I've got a little list, I've got a little list of society offenders who might well be underground and who never would be missed, who never would be missed. There's the pestilential nuisances who write for autographs, all people who have flabby hands and irritating laughs, all children who are up in dates and ploy with them flat, all people who on shaking hands shake hands with you like that, and all third persons who on spoiling tete-a-tetes insist they'd none of them be missed, they'd none of them be missed. So that's Shepperton destroyed. Yeah, well, Shepperton Church seems like it really was destroyed because we couldn't see it. No. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, but I think the question we want to ask ourselves is why is it that HGOLs wants to destroy London yeah. suburbia? Specifically London suburbia. Yeah, and why yeah. is he worried about invasion? Yeah. As well, well, again, if you've not been to these parts of, of London, you know London did sprawl in the second half of the nineteenth century, and it generally sprawled out along the lines of the railways. And Woking is an example of that. But the type of houses that are being built are, you know, relatively small, three or four bedrooms. Uh, people who work as clerks in the city are buying them, um, and it's a, you know, it's a certain type of middle class lifestyle that is emerging. An outlook, I suppose you'd say. Do you know about the Marchetti constant? <laughs> no, dear. I do not know about the Marchetti constant. It's very interesting. Cesare Marchetti, or Marchetti, an Italian physicist. Yeah. I'm getting this from Bloomberg, by the way, Bloomberg.com. Okay. An article called The Commuting Principle That Shaped Urban History. 
Ooh. Cesare Marchetti, in general, he declared, people have always been willing to commute for about half an hour one way from their homes each day. And this has been true throughout all history. A walking city is a certain size. And then... So it's trains. Uh, so trains are what's going to uh, have a massive impact on London. Yeah. 1870s. He's got a lovely map on here of the size of Paris and the size of Rome. The size of Rome in 275 and the size of London in 1870. Yeah. Did you know, you, in fact, today, uh, the travel time between London, Waterloo and Woking is 26 minutes. Yeah. There's a very good bit. Quite early on in the book, he meets an artillery man who survived the first heat ray attack. Yeah. They get split up at Shepparton, don't they? They do, yeah. But he meets him again on Wimbledon Common or just by or, or sort of Putney Wimbledon way. He's survived and he's gone a bit loopy. Yeah. And he's decided that, that the way to survive is going to be to sort of live underground yep. and become a different kind of human race. Which, when you think the time machine came out three or four years yeah. earlier, which is exactly what happened. And the right? narrator realised, oh, this guy's a bit nutty, I better leave yeah, him yeah. behind. Yeah. But he, does, there's, he does a long speech, the artillery man, uh, where he says that the suburban people who've been, up, you know, that he's lived with before are going to be no good against the Martians. All these sort of people that lived in these houses and all those damn little clerks that used to live down that way, they'd be no good. They haven't any spirit in them. No proud dreams and no proud lusts. Mm. And a man who hasn't one or the other, Lord, what is he but funk and precautions? Mm. They just used to skedaddle off to work. I've seen hundreds of them. Bit of breakfast in hand, running wild and shining to catch their little season ticket train for fear they'd get dismissed if they didn't. Working at businesses they were afraid to take trouble to understand. Skedaddling back for fear they wouldn't be in time for dinner. Keeping indoors after dinner for fear of the back streets and sleeping with the wives they married, not because they wanted them, but because they had a bit of money that would make for safety in their one little miserable skedaddle throughout the world. I wish you could see Tim's face while he was reading that. <laughs> it's like the authentic face of H.G. Wells there. Like the contempt in those lines is yeah, quite Yeah, 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 yeah. So I think he's he's slightly aligned with the artillery man, do you not feel? Oh, yeah, well, I think, I think yeah. so. I think we're, we're seeing the, the authorial voice emerge there. And alongside that, of course, is the, is the growing fear of the Germans and of, of invasion. So the combination of it's possible that Britain could be invaded by an alien power, yeah. but also that there's the enemy within, yeah. which is the, the the suburban culture of just getting on train, getting off a train, yeah. not having backbone, not having any lust. Yeah, well, it's not the enemy within so much as like you know the fine the fine living oak oak oakley Englishman is being degraded by this lifestyle and these choices, and uh, you know it, it, it won't it, it won't serve as well when the Martians come. Although, to be fair, no one really stands up to the Martians. I mean, it is extraordinary, isn't it, that this whole book, the Martians should choose the southwest suburbs of London. To, you could see why they went for they, London. No, they went for the heart of empire. They, they, looked, they looked at the world and said two-thirds of this globe is being run by some people from London. Yeah, but do you think they went for the heart of empire and just missed by 20 miles? And that's why they ended up <laughs> working. Because it takes them a while. Well, it takes them a while to get their eye in. <laughs> We're going to have to talk about where the where, where they the, landed. Where the cylinders land, yeah. There were ten ten cylinders yeah. landed, oh. but they're not all accounted for. No. I'm, I'm slightly annoyed about you that. You are slightly annoyed about that. Um okay, well that's, Moving on. Moving on. So we've been to Woking and we've been to Weybridge and Shepparton. Where and, are we going now? Well, so we wanted to try and there's there's an amazing scene in the book where he's basically trapped in the basement of a house in Sheen, 
which is further into London. Yes, after after he's floated down the river after the attack, he comes out on the shore and he meets a curate. A curate, and they who's, make, and who's they a make, bit funny in the head. He's gone a bit. He's gone loop, a bit loopy, and they make their way over Richmond Bridge and sort of across the Thames, and and sort of it, it get towards London. They're heading sort of northeastwards. Then they, there's an attack by another tripod. There's an attack by another tripod, and there's another landing. Right. Yes. It's another landing while they're in Sheen, and it lands on the house that they're in. Coincidentally, it Co- lands right on the house yeah. that they're in. And he's they're right. St- he's right in amongst it, this guy. I mean, have, have we not, have we not considered that the Martians have just not got it in for the narrator? <laughs> due, to some, due to some sort of terrible slight that he wasn't even aware of. Do you know how long they're stuck in there for? Uh, no. But I do. Oh, do you? <laughs> yeah. Should we talk about that when we get to timings? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But it's a long time. So we're off to Sheen. It can't be midnight yet, I said, and then came a blinding glare of vivid green light. Everything in the kitchen leaped out, clearly visible in green and black, and vanished again, and then followed such a concussion as I have never heard before or since. So close on the heels of this as to seem instantaneous came a thud behind me, a clash of glass, a crash, and rattle of falling masonry all about us, and the plaster of the ceiling came down upon us, smashing into a multitude of fragments upon our heads. So they're in a house... This is the fifth canister. The fifth cylinder. Abruptly, the right interpretation dawned on my mind. The fifth cylinder, I whispered. The fifth shot from Mars has struck this house and buried us under the ruins. So So where is that house? So where is the house? So we're trying to find the house where he, he hides with the curate, escaping from Woking and Weybridge and walking towards London, but also with an idea that he might get to Leatherhead. (laughs) <laughs> he's walking in completely the wrong direction for Leatherhead, but I guess he's also trying to avoid the Martians, so he's thinking that maybe... I he think can... he's trying to avoid marriage. Maybe he's trying to avoid his wife. <laughs> so he's made it to... He makes it over the bridge to Richmond, and then he describes it as walking towards Kew, and then they change direction. And then he says they go through Sheen. Now, we're in, we're in south-west London, near the Thames. We're into London now, I think it's fair to say. And Sheen lies just to the east of Richmond. Oh, no. Or does it? Does well, it even this exist? Blow, this blow, do you know what? This blew my mind. So is you, that basically, so, well, when on, I looked let, up where Sheen Just to be was, to point out, there's an East Sheen station. Yeah. And there's a North Sheen station. Yeah. There's no Sheen station. So visitors, there doesn't seem to be a Sheen. Yeah. Visitors to the UK, especially from America, will, will find this pretty normal for pretty normal. Britain. Yeah. Is that... Is that we 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 sort of have north north something east something west something, and something. but we don't have the something. No, it's just gone. So it's and we don't know where it is. No. So I was thinking, well, there's North Sheen and there's East Sheen, so we can just triangulate between those two things, and that'll be Sheen. Yeah. But it's Richmond. Well, it is up to a point, but in the book he does talk about walking through Richmond. No, across Richmond Bridge. Yes. No, then he talks about Richmond, Richmond. burning behind him up the hill. Okay. So for him, Richmond But then he is says Sheen was untouched or Sheen something like that. Sheen was untouched. So he's got, he's got a distinction between Richmond and Sheen, Sheen in his head. And I think but historically, the, it was Sheen before it was Richmond. Yeah. Richmond is, was a name invented by Henry VII. It was. There has been, historically, a Sheen palace yes. since Edward III. Yes. And it was partic- uh, Henry V was particularly fond of it and and modernised it and did all kinds of lovely things with it. So, But when the Tudors turned up, Henry VII, he said, right, that's it, we're not even going to call it Sheen Palace, we're just going to call it Richmond Palace, right. and he, then he revamped it. But and then, for, course, of course, his son, Henry VIII, said, I don't even want to live there, I'm going to build an even bigger palace in Yanking, yanking you back to the 19th slash 20th century. Yeah. 
H.T. Wells describes walking through Sheen. So Sheen is a place as far as he's concerned. Yes. And it's not Richmond, because Richmond is described as burning. Okay, but it's not Kew either. It's not Kew. And it's not... So uh, the road that runs... There's a road that runs from Richmond to East Sheen. Yes. Which we can imagine plausibly running through some kind of non-specific zone that's a bit Sheeny. Yeah. And that's where we are now. And it's called the Upper Richmond Road. And the reason it's called the Upper Richmond Road is because it's a bit higher than the Lower Richmond Road, which means you can look back towards Kew, which he describes as doing, right? Yeah, there's a a tripod there, and he sees it over towards Kew Lodge. So we quite like like the locale. The trouble is there's a lot of large Victorian houses along this road. Mm. Um, But we are standing um, next to one that is in a road called Kings Farm Avenue. Kings Farm Avenue. So on the corner of Kings Farm Avenue and Upper Richmond Road. He describes a large white house with a walled garden. Yeah. These are not white, they're not but white. they're clear brick, and they could easily have been, they could have been cleaned up. They could have point. been white at the time. They could have been rendered. There is a walled garden with quite a large tree in it. Yeah. And there is a, even a bit of a conservatory at the back, although that's modern. So it fits, the, it fits the description of the house quite well. but And of running a, across the road at a, a point when the road curves towards Mortlake, which mention. is another thing he says. Yeah, he does mention So that. it's sort of right, but I think given the fact that we can't even find Sheen, but it's if you, not if, surprising if we don't find the house. But, yeah, but if you were walking, if you wanted to kind of find a house that matched the bill, the house this on is the it. corner of Kings Farm Avenue and Upper Richmond Road isn't bad. But, but now, let's remind ourselves again that it would be a kind of 60-yard cylinder will have bombed into the back of that from outer space, and yet somehow it survived. Well, can I just point out that there is a gap between 202 and 204 Upper Richmond Road, because we're standing in it right now. <laughs> that is true. So I like it, because when they come out, when they come out of the house, when you find, after 15 days in this house... It's 15 days with the, with the He comes curious. out onto the lip of the the crater and looks north again towards Kew so if he was yeah. on this upper road he and could, then there was a crater that he went yeah. up he'd have a, he would have a fantastic view from back here looking Kew. right across back Kew. towards Kew would be there it's good. we've got two very large trees here that are quite old as well plain trees yeah good enough I think, I think it, I'm, I think, I'm taking it I think it fits the bill I was really hoping you know what I was really hoping what? that just down the road on a, on a similar kind of corner big white house with a walled garden Mark Boland's house oh he did live near here didn't he yeah so I, I like the idea that Martians had landed in Mark, at Mark Boland's house be better if it was David Bowie's house <laughs> yeah I know it's close though it's not maybe bad. they maybe they got confused it's rock adjacent <laughs> it's rock adjacent it all sounds the same to the Martians well he yeah <laughs> What Boland, boogaloo, David Bowie. Boogaloo. boogaloo. They came for the boogaloo. about the greatest problem mankind has to face. 
I do not mean the greatest problem that any man may have to face. Personal problems are individual. They differ with every one of us. But I mean the greatest problem that is before our race as a whole. And that is how we are to get rid of the old governments that we have worn out and that we have grown out of. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. So we've already talked about the book was published in Pearson's in 1897, published in hardback uh, for the first time in 1898. But we haven't talked about when is the book actually set? Very good. Um, I've done a lot of work on and this. This is this is the, this, <laughs> this is, is my uh, favourite bit. If you're new to the Curiosity Specific Book Club, this is very much Tim's favourite bit. I love this kind if of thing. If there's train timetables involved, that's where I come in. Yeah. If it's uh, dating. Um, making kind of curious connections between potential dates in the books that are often quite spurious between, oi, you, oi, oi. between you and me, listener. Uh, this is very much Tim's wheelhouse. So over to you, Tim. Well, the thing to do, listener, if, if you're really part of this book club, what you do is, as you go through it, you note when day breaks and night falls. <laughs> okay. And you note every day that's mentioned, whether it's a Tuesday or a Wednesday. Yeah. So that by the end of the book, you're very clear as to how long this book has been going on for. Yeah. And this book goes on for 30 days. Exactly 30 days? Pretty much, yeah. Okay. Yeah. If if anybody wants to contact me to know what happens on every day, from day one, which we know is a Friday in June, by the way, because he mentions that. We do know it's a Friday in June. I mean, obviously, right at the beginning, you you read out at the beginning. Nobody would have believed. Yes. What's the next thing they say? 
I don't know. In the last years of the 19th century. Yes, that's the... Uh, that this world was being watched. So it's, it's, this is, he's saying this in the 20th century. And early in the 20th century came the great disillusionment. Okay, okay. meaning the 30 days. Yeah. Now, now we have to get into something a little bit tricky here. <laughs> okay, str- strap in, listener. Well... <laughs> Normally, we talk about train timetables. We yeah. might stray into tide tables. Yeah, yeah. But here we have to talk about astronomical tables, don't okay, we? Okay. Because we have to talk about the uh, opposition of Mars. It's worth pointing out at this stage that Wells failed his paper in astronomical physics at the normal school. Which is quite ironic when you think about the, what he wrote next. So, what's very interesting to me is that he says that during the opposition of 1894, yeah. a great light was seen. Blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Then it says peculiar markings were seen near the site of that outbreak during the next two oppositions. Right. And the storm, then it says the storm burst upon us six years ago now oh. as Mars approached opposition. Okay. So, so shall we define it? our terms, Tim? So I'll go what, back what through op- that for What you. is opposition? Right. So basically what the opposition of Mars is, it's essentially when the Earth and Mars are as close together as they could possibly be. Yeah. Now, if you so think of the us all spinning around the sun in the same plane, right? Yeah, yeah possibly that's a bit of a tricky one. Yeah. But if we just said they were spinning around, you know, so we we take a however a year to yeah. to go all the way around the sun, right? Yeah. And the Mars, because it's further away and has a bigger yeah. orbit, it, it takes roughly, yeah. roughly two two years, two years to, make the to same. get around the sun. Yeah. And as it's going around, if you saw them both spinning around, there are going to be moments when they're when they're very far away from each other. Well, they're on opposite sides of the they're, sun. Yeah, yeah. Or, That's conjunction, or, right? Yeah, conjunction, or they're very close together. And if you want to travel between Mars and Earth, you would obviously want to travel. Yeah, when they're as near to each other as possible. And even today, on these new Mars explorers, when NASA decide to launch an explorer to go to Mars, they launch it during the opposition march to minimise the journey time. Right. So we, in reverse, we do the same thing that the the Martians do. The Martians are doing. And they say that basically, at midnight, for 10 days, there are little explosions of a, like a giant cannon launching yeah. these pods. Yeah. 40 millions of Mars it was between us, more than 40 millions. So that night, another invisible missile started on its way to Earth, just a second or so under 24 hours after the first one. So we've got the opposition of 1894, then we've got the next two oppositions, and then he says, as the next opposition was nearing, and he mentions the midnight of the 12th. That's when the that's when the first blast is seen. Yeah, and we know we, these are very predictable. These the oppositions. Well, you'd hope they're, they're every twenty six months, roughly. Okay, but there's charts out there. If you want to look it up online, you can find them. And there's even a historical one, which is yeah. great. So we know that that the one of October eighteen ninety four that Mars was roughly forty three million miles away from us. That then in December eighteen ninety six, when he's when he's writing the book, fifty two million miles away. Yeah. Then January 1899. So the, the one that, um, where they see them coming yeah. is in February 1901. Okay, I'm like, I like this. This is good. Yeah, okay. right. So, so the book says 1894 for the first opposition. Yeah. There's two more, 1896, 1899. Then Ogilvy goes, come and have a look at this. And the next one is 19... 
1901. 1901. In the early years of the 20th in century. In the early years of the 20th century. Very so, good. Uh, and he mentions the 12th, the night of the 12th, that yeah. Ogilvy says he yeah. saw the first explosion. Yeah. And there are 10 pods. There are. So the closest Mars comes during that, that time is the 22nd of February, 10 days after the 12th. Do we like that? We do. Yeah. So, it, but now you've got to decide how long does it take a Martian to get to Earth? Yes. Because that's when they fired off from Mars. Yes. When do they land? Yes. Now, we know they land in June because he says it's in it's June. It's June, yeah. But is it June 1901? Or 1902. Or is it June 1902? So if it was June 1901 and they're launching in February, they'd have to get there across in four months. Yeah. So how quickly? Is that, is that conceivable? Well, I've had a look at how fast things travel between yeah, Mars. Of you have. <laughs> yeah. If you're traveling 40 million miles and you wanted to get there by June, you'd, you'd want to be traveling at 14 and a half miles per hour. Or a thousand miles. 14 and a, <laughs> 40 and a half miles an hour. But, <laughs> that, but, about twice be, the speed of a London uh, uh, minicab at the time. The Locomotions Act of uh, 1896. <laughs> no. 14 and a half thousand miles an hour, right? So, and, and yes, this is right. The shuttle's going at 17 and a half miles an hour. So it's perfectly possible right. for them to go that fast. But actually, um, Mars rovers, things that go to Mars, because yeah. we've got those now, yeah. they tend to take between seven and nine months. And the reason is, and I, this is where your science bit comes in, is yeah. you, you don't fly direct, do you? No. You fly in a parabola, is it? Well, because the planets are moving all the time. Yeah, exactly. You'd have to be going really quite fast on a weird direct trajectory. Well, it is a rocket. <laughs> to get there uh, in 1901. But it is a rocket, though, right. isn't it? So do we now, there's two again? other things in the book that bother me. Right. <laughs> okay. okay. Apart from the fact that he abandons his wife in Leatherhead. No, but it, that one thing I've already read out, which is he said he refers to that he's telling this story from six years ago. Yes. He's narrating it six years after it's happened. Yes. And then he says, really near, near the end of the book, he says, at present, yeah. the planet Mars is in conjunction. Right. But with every return to opposition, I for one anticipate a renewal of their, the Martians, adventure. Like they're going to come back. Right? Yeah. So he's writing this six, six years, years after it happened yeah. at a point when there's a Mars conjunction. Yeah. Now, they're predictable as well. Of course. Right? When was the Mars conjunction? There isn't one in 1901. There, well, there wouldn't one. be because there's an opposition in 1901. Uh, it's in March 1902. Yeah, so it'll be every other year, roughly. Yeah. So, so 1902. Keep going. 1904. Yeah, 1906, 1906, 1908. 1908. So if it's six years, it can't be 1907, can it? It's got to be 1908 that he's writing it. Which suggests that the cylinders landed in 1902. 19, yes, yes. So if you look at the calendar of 1902. Oh, so we know it's a Friday and we know it's June. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, okay, when were the Fridays in June in 1902? Uh, oh, well, I wish I'd written this down now. <laughs> <laughs> Give me a moment. I've got so much stuff here. It's brilliant. I'm looking at Tim's notebook, and it's just pages and pages of uh, of, uh, of charts. Yeah, but I'll tell you why I liked it, is this. So finally, you go to a calendar of 1902 yeah. in June. Uh, there are four Fridays, the 6th, the 13th, the 20th, and the 27th. So if it was to happen across 30 days, you'd be saying that it landed, the Martians landed on the 6th of June, 1902. Yeah. Now, the reason I kind of like this, I, I know he's making this up from the future. I'm glad you realised that. <sighs> yeah, but 
is that when was Edward the Seventh crowned <laughs> king? Well, he was king from 1901, but was he actually yeah. crowned in 1902? Well, here's the thing. It was originally scheduled for the 26th of June, oh. 1902, <laughs> but it was cancelled. It was postponed. Because he was, you, he, I love where you're going. With do you, this. Know what, you see what I'm doing here? Yeah, yeah. This is like no, but this is good. This is like a proper kind of Roswell conspiracy type yeah, yeah, thing. Yeah. So you know there where I'm was going a Martian invasion. They cancelled. <laughs> they said he was a bit unwell and had to have some surgery. He had to have some surgery. Yeah, yeah. Oh yeah, my days. Yeah. And he had, he had had a carefully planned as a spectacle, and he had to revise it all. And he wasn't crowned until the 9th of August, 1902. But it's quite nice to think that this that he projected a month, it. A month after the uh, yeah. so the he year. he basically was predicting the end of the Victorian era and the yeah, beginning yeah, of the yeah. Edwardian era as the cut cut off point of yeah. when the Martians came. But he didn't know that in eighteen ninety six. No, he that's didn't. uncanny. No, uncanny, that right? That's really really good. I love it. So we're saying that the Martians landed on Friday. The 6th of June, 1902. Is this a good point to say, why do they land where they land, these cylinders? Because the thing that's always puzzled me is, right, you're firing, you're firing a rocket off from Mars every 24 hours. The Martian day isn't 24 hours. It's just over 24 hours. So the position in which you're firing the, the rocket from on Mars... They're doing it in Earth time. Is, they must be doing it in Earth time, which means they must be trying to land the rockets all in the same place. Yes. And just not quite getting it. Well, just, because there, there, there would a, be slightly off. There yeah. is a slightly random... Pattern. So they land in Horsell Common in Woking, and they all, but they all, the later ones land in Byfleet and Wimbledon. Do you want and, a list? Yeah, go on, give, <laughs> give me the... Well, there's an interesting thing about the list, isn't there, which I know you've, you want to talk about. So, yeah. uh, so give us... They fire... Us, they fire ten cylinders. They yeah. fire... Ten Between cylinders. the 12th of February and the 22nd of February, there are 10 launches. Yeah. First one lands in Horsell Common. Yeah. Second one in what is referred to as Addleston Golf Course, yeah. which we now yeah, know is New called New Zealand New Golf Zealand Course. Golf still, course. There. still there. Still there. The third one, they say, is lands in Purford. They say the fourth one landed in Bushy Park. Now, for people who don't know London, if you looked up Bushy, you'd think, oh, that's miles off. But actually, there's a Bushy Park park inside Hampton Court yeah the fifth one is the one that lands on the house in Mortlake yeah or Sheen Sheen yeah um the sixth one he says lands in Wimbledon which is kind of off course Wimbledon Common they broadly speaking well they're coming towards London coming towards centre of London they're following him around because he's near there (laughs) trying to hit him and then the Wimbledon Common one is a little bit random because that's the seventh one lands in Primrose Hill yeah and then eight nine ten nobody cares not mentioned don't care where they landed. Not mentioned at all. Don't care where they landed. So there's three unaccounted for. Don't but if they got news that the bacteria was killing them by day seven, yeah. they would then telepathically tell the people inside 8, 9, 10, don't come out of your cylinder. And they're still there. Yes. They're still there. Okay. Like it. I think they should be excavating the garden of Buckingham Palace is yeah. what I think they should be yeah. doing. We're about to move off to our last location, I think, aren't we? Oh, yes. Yeah. yeah. So uh, after much adventure and de- destruction and chaos, our hero arrives at Primrose Hill in the north of London. I missed my way among the streets and presently saw down a long avenue in the half-light of the early dawn the curve of Primrose Hill. On the summit, towering up to the fading stars, was a third Martian 
erect and motionless, like the others. An insane resolve possessed me. I would die and end it, and I would save myself even the trouble of killing myself. I marched on recklessly towards this titan, and then, as I drew nearer and the light grew, I saw that a multitude of black birds was circling and clustering about the hood. At that my heart gave a bound and I began running along the road. I hurried through the red weed that choked St Edmund's Terrace and emerged upon the grass before the rising of the sun. Great mounds had been heaped about the crest of the hill, making a huge redoubt of it. It was the final and largest place the Martians had made and from behind these heaps there rose a thin smoke against the sky. So they've built a fort, essentially, at the top of Primrose Hill. Yes, they why, have. Why would they do that? Ah, well, tell the listener where we are. Well, we are, at, we are on Primrose Hill. We are at the top of Primrose Hill. For anyone who doesn't know London, Primrose Hill is a... Uh, <laughs> it's a hill. <laughs> it's a hill. <laughs> it's a hill. It's in, the in north, London. It's in the north of London. Uh, it's, it's, it's between Camden and St John's Wood. And it's... Um, it looks down over, it's an amazing view. It's a really amazing view. You made the very good point when we were standing uh, up there making some video that if you wanted to kind of lay waste to London with a heat ray, yes. Primrose Hill is a pretty good place to place your heat ray gun. You basically have an uninterrupted 270 degree view across the whole of London. Including all the way around, all the way down to Crystal Palace, right? Which he says in the boy he can see. He claims that he can see that. It's interesting that he mentions Kilburn uh, and Imperial. Yes. Now, just before he wrote this book, in 1889, he was living on Primrose Hill. He was living in a place called Fitzroy Road, which is just the east side of Primrose Hill, mm-hmm. the northeast side of Primrose Hill. That's, that makes yes, sense. Yes, that's right, yeah. um, the chalk farm side. He was living there with his aunt and Isabel, the, uh, the cousin that he's basically been trying to get into bed with for a considerable amount of time. Uh, who's resisting it, who he eventually marries. So he's been living up here. Uh, and while he's been living here, first of all, he was studying at Imperial okay. for his normal degree, which is the teacher training qualification. But then later he was teaching at a school in Kilburn. Oh. And uh, one of the people he was teaching was A.A. A. Milne. Oh, really? Creator of Winnie the Pooh. Now the, another apocalyptic novel. Another apocalypse of novel full of... You know, hatred, and the end anger of innocence, and rage, and the, the death of childhood. The death of childhood. It's very, very bleak and yeah. sad. And, and also a tale, obviously, of of dominance and greed of Rabbit, the fascist leader, <laughs> Pooh, the greedy capitalist, in search of honey. Piglet, I feel, <laughs> must be destroyed. Piglet's the uh, ever deluded proletariat. Okay, but isn't he like squeaking? Anyway, this is another book. I think we went off topic there. Um, but the, I think the other thing, that reason that's interesting is uh, you have just taken me on a bit of a walk, Tim. Yes, well... We, did, we didn't manifest here. We arrived here. Well, that's because he describes coming into London and coming up Baker Street. So we met at Baker Street. And then he does say he goes up Park Road along, uh, alongside Regent's Park and he sees... Well, he, first of all, he hears a strange noise. Yes. Should we talk about the noise? or do? Well... We had a difference of opinion. Well, you, you so so it's 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 written on the page, U L L A U L L A U L L A. Allah, Allah, Allah. Right. I I thought it was Ola, Ola, Ola. 
You think the Martians are quite high-pitched, don't you? Well, I'll tell you what made me think about that. Adam Roberts, the science fiction author, has got a, he's a big H.G. Wells expert, far more expert than we are, and he wrote a whole blog. He read, reread the whole of Wells a few years ago and wrote a blog about it, Wells at the World End, which is very good. Wells at the World's End. And um, he makes the point that the noise of the Martians sounds like a call to prayer from a minaret. Ooh, that's quite good, isn't it? Which I quite like for two reasons. Yes. Obviously, well, actually three reasons. Three reasons. So um, Robert says it's actually an imperial reference. You know, okay. It's, a, it's another ring of the Martians. Yes. Um, which I think is quite interesting. The other thing is, obviously, Wells lived near a mosque In when he was writing the book. We've discussed the, uh, the mosque. And obviously now there's a massive mosque just where he might have seen the Martians. Almost exactly there. Yeah. Almost exactly in the same spot. I thought it was going to be much lower than that. I thought it was going to be like a didgeridoo or something. Yeah, I quite like that as well. Yeah, but that, that, is, that, that, that did sound like a didgeridoo. We've come to the end of our journey. We yes. ought to rate this book. We should give it our what I like to call our Q-spec rating. So we, uh, rating for artistic merit and then a rating for uh, specificity. specificity. So artistic merit, I'm going to give this book an eight Eight. I'm going to go quite high. I'm going to go for an eight. I think it's it, a great, great book, and more people past, should read it. In the past, you've talked about this book as a ten, but then you'd have nowhere to go for all the other books. No, that are coming, well, my favourite book in the world is Portrait of a Lady, so that's my benchmark. Okay, that's a ten. So eight this is good. Two, then. This is twenty percent, twenty percent less good than Portrait of a Lady. <laughs> I th- that's what ratings are about. That's what ratings are about. Boiling yeah. it down to a stupid mark. Yeah, I'm going seven. Seven okay. out of ten. You're a bit firmer than me. Your Goodreads ratings are quite are quite firm. Well, I'm, I, yeah, it's, you, it's very hard to get a 10 from me. Yeah, I know. I've tried so hard. <laughs> a rating for specificity. How curiously specific is this book about dates and locations, would, would you say? I'm going to let you go first on this one. Well, I, I'm quite admiring of this because it's mapped out all the days. He doesn't get a weekday wrong. We've got dates. He's even got his Mars dates right. I mean, and his travelling is all viable that you could travel between each location during those days. So it's hard not to give him a 10, actually. But I'm going to give him a 9. OK. I, I agree with all that. I think it's a great example of write what you know, OK? You know, because he was writing about places he lived or had lived uh, and uh, had a real understanding about how places went backwards and forwards. I mean, the slightly odd excursion to Leatherhead and not back, notwithstanding, which is just a bit narratively weird in the book it's clearly right in terms of location so i would agree with you all nine I could yeah also give it a nine. well done well done so uh, i'm giving him a total score of uh, 17 17 and i'm giving him 16 16 so that's pretty good isn't it well done mr wells well done and particularly on on keeping track of your timeline yeah because as we go forward with some of the other books we're going to have to have some words with some of these writers about keeping control are you of measuring their timeline. up are you measuring up yeah yeah, Do you know did. your Wednesday from your Thursday? So that's, uh, so that's Primrose Hill. You know, of course, that Primrose Hill was owned by, or a large tract it was owned by Eton College before it became a part. Oh. Is there any part of England that isn't at least partly owned by Eton College? No. Well, there is an Eton College connection to this book. <laughs> that's why I've teed it up for you, You did mate. tee it up very I've well. Uh, up. So in Claire Tomalin's excellent biography of The Young Wells, which has just been published... She talks about George Orwell and Cyril Connolly. Cyril Connolly. Cyril Connolly. Being at school together in the summer of 1914 and jointly reading The Country of the Blind. 
an H.G. Wells short story. Oh, okay. And they were both huge, huge Wells fans. Orwell wrote this about him, which I think is really good. Thinking people who were born about the beginning of this century are in some sense Wells's own creation. I doubt whether anyone who was writing books between 1900 and 1920, at any rate in the English language, influenced the young so much. The minds of all of us, and therefore the physical world, would be perceptibly different if Wells had never existed. And then he really gets going. Mm. There you were, in a world of pedants, clergymen and golfers, with your future employers exhorting you to get on or get out, your parents systematically warping your sexual life, and your dull-witted schoolmasters sniggering over their Latin tags. And here was this wonderful man who could tell you about the inhabitants of the planets and the bottom of the sea, and who knew that the future was not going to be what respectable people imagined. Up to 1914, Wells was in the main a true prophet. Wow. Good, isn't it? Wow. Well, he's giving it a very high Q-spec rating. I think he's probably going for a solid 10. That was War of the Worlds by H.G. Wells. Quite an adventure. Quite an adventure. We'd like to say some thank yous. I know who you're going to thank. I want to thank Ian Wakeford. Okay, so Ian Wakeford, a local historian in Woking, done tons of work on uh, War of the Worlds and Wells, which is which you, you got a bit jealous at one point, I thought. It was a bit well, slow. I'm presuming Ian is presenting the next podcast. Well, well, unless it's on War of the Worlds, probably not. But uh, Ian Wakeford's website is at wokinghistory.org. I strongly urge you to check it out. It's got a ton of really good stuff on it. If you live in Woking and you haven't looked at it, then you've really... Uh, you're missing really, out. You've really been missing out. I want to say thank you to the artist Learning Music, who I found on Free Music Archive, which if you have never used, you should have a look at. It's basically a repository of lots of Creative Commons music, and it's from there that we got our lovely little loop of music that we use as our theme tune. So thank you, Learning Music. If you are interested in any of the other clips that we use in the show, music or otherwise... Uh, you need to subscribe to our Patreon page, yeah, patreon.com. We, we put all our show notes up there, including quite a lot of the additional research we do and links to all the you know, excerpts, outtakes, video, audio. It's all there. Uh, so go to patreon.com and search for Curiosity Specific and uh, you'll, you'll, you'll see what the subscription tiers are. Thanks for listening. Give us a like or a subscribe on whatever podcast you're, you're listening to this on. Yes, that's important to us. Please and do. Ma- and maybe give us a follow. We're on Twitter as Curiosity Spec. Yes. Uh, we're on Instagram as Curiosity Specific. We Club, are. And uh, I believe we're on Facebook. Oh. <laughs> oh. Uh, Stig, who does our marketing, insisted that we go on Facebook. And, he calls uh, it meta now. He calls it meta. But uh, neither of us are particularly happy about it. We have a YouTube channel as well. We have a, we also podcast have YouTube, is available. We have a YouTube channel as well, yeah. Podca- Other platforms are available. Other platforms are available, but Stig forces us to say that, that kind of stuff. So please like and subscribe, follow, and check out our Patreon page. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.